Awesome. Uh, John, good to, good to hear from you. How are you? Yeah. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I, you know, I, I feel like this is like a, this is a crossover episode between On the Metal and, uh, and Oxide and Friends. It's, it's like, a, you know, it's like two cinematic universes coming together. Actually, it's not like that, but, you know. <laughs> Let, let's milk it for a few years, and then we'll, we'll have some very interesting crossovers. Exactly. Well, I, I feel like Tom Lyons been here as well. Tom has been a regular, which has been great. So another, another On the Metal guest, esteemed On the Metal guest. Um, howdy, howdy. Um, and as someone who's, who's lived, obviously, his life at the hardware software interface. So, uh, John, I mean, obviously, this got started with your tweet, which I've got. So, that just to give people context, um, and Adam, I don't know if you want to drop the, the his tweet in, um, but this is uh, John's tweet decrying the uh, the poor relationship that can develop between hardware and software teams. Um, and John, I gotta believe. Maybe this is wrong. I gotta believe that's gotta be a subtweet. There's gotta be an incident that you maybe don't need to go into detail on. Um, but uh, I, I could just feel your frustration <laughs> when you said we have an even bigger cri- crisis, which is that we still militantly, your emphasis, separate hardware and software people. We put them in different orgs, discourage them from talking to one another, foster mutual hatred, all of which is disgusting and all caps wrong. Fix the broader issue, which is stupidly siloing. Uh, We obviously strongly agree. Was there an incident that pushed you over the edge that you can at least speak with, uh, speak to abstractly? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I love to get myself in trouble. It's, it's, It's what I do. Right. Um, so firstly, uh, it's nothing to do with what I currently do for a living. Um, I'll put that out there. <laughs> That's right. I'm not subtweeting any of my coworkers, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I wasn't. It was. It was. I think it was. I was retweeting actually a, a tweet somebody else had about uh, the the state of hiring and the 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 shocking state of, you know, we have all these folks going into software but not into hardware and. And I'm like, yeah, because uh, nobody knows any better. I mean, we, we, we just we, we do a lousy job as an industry at integrating everybody into one cohesive whole. We don't do that. Um, and uh, if you're coming into the industry today, you've probably from an early age had it beaten into you that, you know, learning Python or, you know, whatever else is, is the thing to do and go into software and, you know, uh, practice leak code and get hired at some tech company and all this kind of thing. Right. And, and um, uh, there's a, there's a broader meta issue, which is uh, (laughs) subtweeting our, uh, on the metal episode, right. Moore's law is slowing down. The free lunch is over. Yeah. And if we, and, and, and people are, people want more interesting stuff. Like we hear a lot of people talking about, buying you know i'm a i'm a mac fan okay but people are fond, fond of different things but there's a trend towards very integrated optimized devices and experiences and you don't get those by having your you know 1980s pc with your plug-in adapter cards and you know i i'm 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 definitely a pc enthusiast right but the old school world of i you know buy a box and i put all these pieces in there and i don't think about the whole thing from the beginning that's going away and it ain't coming back. And it's because the free lunch is over. Right. And so you have to design these things more deliberately. And if you're doing that, let's for goodness sake, fix the hiring 
mess and the the industry mess of people not not working together and and I tweeted it in that particular way because I've spent not as long as you in the industry but almost right we've we've had similar journeys over the past couple of decades of just seeing this done so painfully in so many places and it's time it changed amen so yeah okay a bunch of threads that that i want to pick up um one of them is the the i mean you you talk about this kind of fostering of of mutual hatred which i definitely feel i have seen where people will criticize the elements that they don't understand or they'll trivialize those aspects of the problem that they don't understand and i i feel that we i mean and maybe Maybe I'm biased because I think that the problems, uh, hardware and software problems are different. I mean, we're trying to build a system with them, but they are, uh, and in particular, like the hardware actually has to work. Um, and the- Does that, it though? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but I, I feel that like the constraints on the problem are so different because it's got to be, it's got to stick the landing. And software can iterate to the point where, I mean, software is to the contrary, like often never done. And I, I do feel that there's often some misunderstandings and some, some, I, I, some of the, these perceptions that arise are really inaccurate. And I feel that, you know, you get, you definitely get folks that are disparaging hardware as and trivializing it because all they have known is functioning hardware and they are, all they've known is boring. Right, they've had a PC for decades that just they turn it on and and they grumble about oh this BIOS update sucked or you know I didn't like that update or something like that and, and I'm like you have no idea <laughs> like right. it worked so much of the time that occasionally right. I got to point out you know I I think you pointed out just now the 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 relative cost of failure or mistakes right in the two different domains if you want to separate them out right like like the cost of making a mistake with a piece of silicon is you know tens to hundreds of millions if not more dollars and months right it's these days it's more like and you've delayed your product by six months and you're screwed right right because you needed to make the holiday or whatever it was you were targeting and software it doesn't have to be done because you can just ship an update but that's an unhealthy mentality too but 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 i think there is Sort of, uh, you know, in the software community, there's this idea that hardware sucks, hardware people are always making mistakes, and oh, if they would just fix it, and you know, um, that someone turns up in a, in a, say, the Linux kernel community with some piece of hardware, and they get, um, I will filter my response, they get, um, <laughs> they get pooped on <laughs> by, 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 by people, right? Your hardware sucks. You need to do this and this and this. And meanwhile, they're like, yeah, we totally get it. But also we're shipping this right now in millions of units and we need it to, you know, so expectations are different as well. You're absolutely right. Right. Interesting. Okay. So now I feel we're getting somewhere. So we'll get some, maybe some LKML reactions to hardware. May have, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not to put words to your mouth, but that may have been uh, played an instigating role here. Um, it, <laughs> Over the years, right? It's, it's, it's constant. It's continual. Uh, the, the sort of hating on hardware people. And I'm like, look, there's a lot of hardware that's really, really bad. Don't get me wrong. But, but you, you can't just say, oh, those hardware people. I mean, it, it, they have a lot of challenges. Like, you're shipping hardware, Brian, right? If you make a, 
and operators are standing by, right? They can buy hardware from you very soon, uh, or <laughs> even right. now, right? So, but if, if, if you make a mistake in your wonderful, rusty, magic firmware that's great, um, you can ship an update. If you make a mistake on a board, like you're dealing with supply chain, what's, what, how long does it take you now? Ignore silicon, right? Just, just making a, a PCB change. How long does it, that take you? It is very, well, I mean, this is where maybe a good, a good juncture to get Nathaniel in here, um, who's definitely on the, on the cool face of that. Uh, yeah, Nathaniel, how long would a board spin take? It would be a while. Uh, if, if we had the material on hand and it was a very targeted change, you're probably looking at uh, eight weeks. And if you don't have material on hand or parts or your uh, sub-tier contractor wants to like change the, you know, your SMT line time or whatever, then it could be months or quarters, depending on what you do, you know, the scope of the change. And it would be, regardless, it would be an excellent opportunity to learn how much more complicated the, that whole process is than any, I mean, I, it is amazing to me how complicated, and I've, I've said this before, but please, can someone write the definitive history of the PCB? Because it is so important to every single thing we do. And I feel like I am still, I mean, I'm still learning so much about like the, the curing of the prepreg, Nathaniel, was one of these things where, like, okay, wait, yep. wait, the, the prepreg is like milk. Like we have to like drink yeah, it, expires. it expires. It expires, right. yeah. Um, do you want to actually just like talk about that particular issue? Not to, not to dwell on that one. But yeah, maybe, so we're, we're using, uh, you know, uh, we're using a Tachyon 100G material on one or more of the boards we're doing. And, uh, you know, we aspirationally ordered some ahead to be you know kind of uh on top of things and then you know of course the schedule slides a little bit and we're you know a little bit behind on some of the design and you know we're realizing that uh, all this prepreg that we uh which prepreg it's basically resin in a, a fiber weave and so it's our the resin has already been injected in there so it has a shelf life and, um, and, and you know our vendor basically said hey uh you know you have to use this by such and such a date and, you know, we were going to be a couple of weeks out of bed there. And so, you know, we ended up like having to work with them to put it in a freezer and, you know, like keep it from expiring for a couple more weeks in order to, you know, get the thing done. Hey, Nathaniel, this is a very dad question, like, because sure. uh, I, I taste the milk before I throw it out, no matter how far out of date it is. So what <laughs> happens, like what happens to this stuff when it goes off? Like what, well, what, what's the, what's the phenomenon? So your your the resin won't cure correctly as you uh you know as you like build the circuit board and so your circuit boards can delaminate or they'll have various reliability problems and they'll uh you know you, it's a bad thing if you know your twenty two layer circuit board like rips in half and you only have ten layers left or something so like that's kind of a problem. Okay, so yeah, that, this, that sounds like a problem. Is this what's sticking the, the, the sort of FR four layers together? I mean, how does that how yeah does that in with the, yeah so. Okay. The, they have cores and and then fiber, and so they have a, a like rigid core, and those those just have copper plated on both sides. Yep. And uh, those don't expire; they're just you know they're already cured, right? Somebody has already done the work, and then uh, between that layer, then you'll put a prepreg layer down uh, after uh, you etch, etch the copper, and then you'll put another yeah. core on top of that, and and you know you just build up however many you need. Um, but that stuff is you know it's like wet chemistry, so you like it has oh, a, it has it has a time. <laughs> Well, and this I, is what you Oh, no, totally. And I, John, I feel like this is like every day at Oxide. I learned that I don't actually understand how computers work and that actually something that has been load-bearing for all of humanity, 
I have never heard of. And by the way, we can't get any of it. Or in the case of the pre-preg, it's going to expire. It's going to go, although not Adam's. Adam is still going to, Adam's going to drink his, but the rest of us are not going to use the Yeah, I mean, let's try, let's try a little, exactly. <laughs> just, just, just smell around the edge. Um, but, and I feel that like this, I, John, I do feel that like one thing that I've, I've certainly been very helpful at Oxide, and I would like to think we can do more generally, is just a little more cross-pollination and education about how complicated this stuff is. Because Nathaniel, I would love, to, I mean, like something like like the pre-preg. I mean, is, is that part of a double E undergrad curriculum? Because I don't feel that it is. I feel like that that's something that it, people learn in industry. It definitely wasn't in part of mine. So, and you know, I am a double E, so, uh, you know, I learned that on the job and, you know, I think the supply chain crisis has really brought a lot of that stuff, uh, like under the microscope, because I think, you know, previously, you know, if you work at a big company, like you, you have people for that, right? Like somebody goes and does it and your board manufacturers like, oh, it's no problem. It's like two week lead time, you, you, you know, you for it, right? well, yeah. So, oh, and I mean, I want, I want a board. Oh, okay. I go to the board company. I know locally or. I want a small number or, you know, somewhere in, uh, you know, Taiwan right. or wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you still do that, but they're like, you know, they're going to tell you, okay, well, you know, to get that fancy material, the lead time, instead of being the normal four weeks that it would be, which is usually, you know, hopefully you're, you're building circuit boards more than four weeks ahead of time, if you kind of know what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, it's not usually like the, the long lead on anything. And then, you know, you get to here and it's like, well, yeah, that's going to be 22 weeks uh, for that. And it's like, well, 22 weeks is kind of like out of our product project schedule for this. So like we have a problem. And, you know, so then you kind of get into all of the, you know, so then we're buying stuff a lot earlier than you normally would because you can't just in time it. And then when you buy it too early, it expires. So, it expires. You know, you... Uh, so actually, this is a really good point, though, Nathaniel, because, you know, I've often said that part of what I like about a system that is failing is that it reveals itself. And that when you have a system that has failed, when you've got a crash dump or a core dump or whatever, you know, panic, whatever you have, you've got to understand that full layer of so that full stack of software. And I, it's kind of like a, a, just your point about this, the supply chain crisis is actually forcing us to be aware of some of this stuff that was load bearing that, that even those who are, who are practiced in the art don't necessarily, weren't necessarily aware of. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would, yeah, I, I would, I would add, you know, I, I by the way, I, I'll, I'll admit I'd never heard of pre-prec until just now. So that, that's great. I've learned something today, right? I like to think, you know, I know a little bit about PCBs. Normally you, my, my knowledge stops at, oh, I have this many layers and you understand you have this many ground planes and all this kind of thing, but and power planes, but, but the actual detail of it has always been this kind of nebulous black box that I guess I never had to care about. I mean, I care. I'm very interested. In fact, I'm going to go and go down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole on that later. But, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it, it's not the sort of stuff that, that you get exposed to, right? Even if you are interested in this. That's, like a, that's, an, that's an industry revelation right there. It, it uh, totally is. And I, it totally is. And I think we need to do a better job as an industry of, of communicating how complicated this stuff is and how we should be grateful when these things work at all. I mean, I feel like, I mean, the thing, I feel like another one that is just, I personally feel I don't understand well and I'm learning something new about every day is DDR and all of the tricks and stunts that are being pulled to increase bandwidth. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. That's like a miracle that it works. So true miracle that it works. <laughs> DDR five, right? That one is a is a true, you know, black magic. 
Whether it works is still in question. <laughs> I was going to say, DDR5 will be America when it works. Yeah, when, <laughs> when it works, right? But, but like the, the, the latest one I was thinking about is it does, EC, it does built-in ECC, right? So, so it, 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 it's great, except you don't know how many things were corrected. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and you, you, know, you know that they built in the ECC because there are errors intrinsically. Yeah, it's designed so. to have errors. Yes, yes. yes. Wait, and just the whole idea of DIM training. I mean, I feel that like, certainly for me, like I did not learn about DIM training until Oxide, even though I, I realized in hindsight that DIM training it, it had adversely affected my life, namely the, the poor DIM training. And that, I, I mean, I feel, and Robert's not here, but we had some, some issues at, at, in previous life that I think were absolutely due to the fact that we were, were seeing DIM training issues that were causing a, a, a ECC errors. But I feel like even DIM training I, is, is this total, like this essential part of the machine well, well, that we don't talk about. That one's weird though, right? So like if anyone doesn't know, you know, memory doesn't just work. You have to train the, the, the timings on various signals and it's all very device specific and this is why, like, when you boot your server, you sit there watching the scrolling little dots go across. You know, DDR training is happening. And DDR training is happening. It's very it, – it takes – because that's the one – John, that is the one, like, blob that we don't deliver in the yeah. – So we basically – that's, yeah. like, that's like a secret little tra- – that's the other thing that's really weird is that, like, they'll give you everything except, oh, the DDR training is special. Like, Why? <laughs> what's the value there right it's, it's weird that one's very weird i guess i'm glad that we on the one hand we're not our code is not load bearing to do it on the other hand like you are just like looking at your stopwatch you know because it takes a lot it actually takes a long time to train the dims also nathaniel is is training the right should it be like dim discovery well it's it's doing more than discovery right it's doing channel characterization and trying to find the middle of an eye but like the trick is, you know, we do this on on certies and that kind of thing, and it's all kind of a, a fairly well known thing. Except that DDR is like a garbage channel, and so it's it's <laughs> built that way because we need, you know, we need all that, you know, massively parallel high bandwidth stuff, but we also want it really cheap. Right. And so, like, you don't want to use a, uh, and, and you know, we're he- I mean, like, we're headed there, right? Like DDR five looks a lot more like a certies than uh, DDR four even does. But like the the cost of putting in the fancy fancy stuff is is not really sustainable at that kind of parallelism, and you can't gang you know like you like we like to you know if you want to do two dims per channel, well you can't do that in a like Certies based system because you can't just stick two people on the same transmit you know wire. But it, but we do that for cost, and so it's doing it's doing electrical characterization to try and make it the best it can, uh, given it, the channel it, that it has. And it cheats as well because it has there's a there's an I squared C channel that that you read this SPD info so there's like the the dim itself will say hi yeah. I'm this yeah Brian knows so that you... one really well oh no, <laughs> this is like my favorite piece of hardware that so Nathaniel early on so we the, we basically interpose on that so the service processor in the sled actually controls the dims. But it means that it needs to, at some point, the CPU is like, hey, I, I actually need to know like what the SPD data. So the SP actually proxies that SPD data. And so, which was very nerve wracking because it felt like, God, I, this is one of these things that should theoretically work, but no one is doing it this way. And if it doesn't work, like the machine's definitely not going to boot. Um, but to test this, I was like, man, I'm looking for, and John, you'd think this would be easy to find, something that can take a dim 
where actually I've got no interest in the like the important stuff, the high speed channel. All I want is the I squared C interface. And I like I kept like going back to Mouser over and over again, being like, I got to be missing something on Mouser and Digikey. And I, I, I for a while I was convinced that there was like I, there, there was a, a, a hidden art to searching Mouser and Digikey that I was unaware of. But I think it's just, I, maybe there is, Nathaniel, I don't know. But the brute I, force. But yeah, I think that's the answer. I think it is brute force and just like absolute resilience. And I was I was kind of like asking, like, Nathaniel, this, this, doesn't this thing have to exist? And I remember you're just like, this thing should exist. Like, I think I can just like bang this thing out pretty quickly. And we have dimlets. Have you seen the dimlet? No, I haven't seen this. No. Oh God, these dimwits are great. So the the, the dimwits are take dims and then plug into a gimlet. So with which is our a gimletlet, which is our smaller gimlet that we use for SP development. It's our bring up vehicle, effectively, and we were able to do all of our validation on that. Um, and it's this great piece. I mean, Nathaniel, we should throw that design out there because that yeah. it's got to be useful to someone else, right? You should because it's like I, I've seen who knows where, but I've seen that done. <laughs> it's like everyone's built one of these for goodness sake. I, I, I mean, to, yeah, yes. to, to be completely honest, the <laughs> reason this thing is not on DigiKey is the fact that like you can just spin the board in like four days and you'll have it, right? Yeah, and, I guess that's so, right. Like, ev everyone who needs to break out low speed signals from DDR, one will never agree on the set of signals to be broken out. <laughs> right. Secondly, like, once you're at the point where you're talking about breaking out a DDR4 DIM, you better as hell know what you're doing anyway. <laughs> well, and so, so Matt, you're hitting on an interesting point. And this is, John, I wanted to get, this is one of the threads I wanted to pull on. Because one of the things that you said at the top, and I totally agree with, I think we all agree with, is that, that when we design the entire system, hardware and software, we can deliver greater utility to the end user. There's, there are things that we can do, and with Moore's Law slowing down, there are things we're going to need to do. One of the interesting revolutions that obviously that we see is around open hardware, open source firmware, making it much more possible than it has been. I mean, because historically, the and this is where like the double E's have been dealing with the absolute worst of software. I mean, can we just say, can we just apologize to all double E's on behalf of all software that we're very, very sorry about the atrocious proprietary software that you've needed to deal with? Uh, and it feels like, open source software here. I mean, because Nathaniel, that was a keycap. I think you did that with keycap, right? Yeah, that's that's a keycap design. Um, and, you know, and, and keycap is not there yet, but it feels like it's getting there for the bigger boards. We're definitely using it for all of our smaller boards. And it feels like, you know, increasingly we are moving to an open world. And Nathaniel, you've, you've seen that happen from your perspective. Do you, I mean, it feels like that would change a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it does. You know, I mean, it's interesting, you know, starting at Oxide was the first time I had even used, um, you know, open source FPGA tooling, which is, you know, that's my big background is FPGAs. And so, um, you know, just like looking at the fact, the fact that you can get out there and like, go look at the code is really useful in a lot of ways. Because, you know, if there's a bug or you're using it wrong, like those are things that you can get out there and do. And so I'm, I'm totally looking forward to the day when we can have our whole sled you know, done in some kind of open source CAD because, um, you know, we're, we're living the dream without it right now. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, I do feel that like, cause John, I mean, you and I in our careers have, have arc and Adam, I mean, we, we've kind of arced it, seen open source arcing into system software and seen all the differences made at first at the operating system and then at the database and all these other tiers of system software. 
And yet that revolution is still coming on and we're still dealing with these proprietary tools that are just as bad as proprietary tools have always been. And it's so galling. It's very, very frustrating. Uh, and it just feels like there's a lot to unlock there. Well, I think, I think, if I may, I think the other thing is, uh, uh, I noticed my wife has dropped. I guess I got, I guess I got boring. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hi, Sarah. Uh, so um, I, I, I think, I think um, we, we, we are heading towards more and more open source hardware. It, it's certainly possible to, you know, if you're, if you're in school, you know, 10 years ago, it was maybe open risk. Right. And, and playing around with, uh, you know, FPGAs and, and starting to look at that kind of thing. Now, obviously, Risk Five is everywhere. You can download a design. You can you can play with things. There's there's, um, you know, there's there's um, Matt Venn's zero to ASIC course. There's there's stuff with Skywater. You can go and tape out chips. You know, this is all great. Um, but still, it's pretty it's pretty hard for someone who doesn't know. um the the whole stack the hardware software stack to kind of do this from scratch you know yeah, like totally. like remember linux from scratch right now now i admit i never actually did the thing the whole way right i built embedded linux systems from scratch but you know there was a linux from scratch project and if gentoo wasn't exciting enough for you then you could you could do linux from scratch and build everything from from the beginning and those projects are great i think you kind of need a system from scratch at some point that 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 says okay you're going to take a you know a risc 5 core you're going to uh build a little soc uh on an fpga uh you're going to go and do the firmware you're going to go and do the software you're going to figure out everything from soup to nuts i don't actually think that exists today i don't think it does either nathaniel i mean do you, i it's certainly like th that would be like the dream undergraduate curriculum that would take you across that hardware software boundary which would be amazing yeah, I'm not aware of that. I'm also not, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like when you look at undergraduate programs, I'm not sure you'd actually get it done in your undergraduate program. So because, that's the thing I was going to ask. Yeah. Like these systems are extremely complicated. And so like it depends on where you want to draw the lines and what parts, you know, I mean, if you maybe if you have the hardware kind of built and you just connect it, maybe, or if you have some of the software stack kind of ready to go. But it, like, I think it would be tough, you know, you, I mean, I figure like, I don't know that until sophomore or junior year, I even had enough skill, uh, you know, in kind of like the electronics field up and down to be able to go that far into any one of those things. So, but I, I mean, there, there are some things that would really help, right? I mean, a lot of undergraduate curriculums still start off with breadboards and 74 series logic and spend... Uh, a, a rather sizable amount of the time in education having people plugging wires into breadboards. Oh, yeah, we've got to make an ALU. Right, yeah. right. And, and clearly this is a good use of everybody's time because as soon as we make it to industry, we swear off 74 series logic and never touch it again except for like one AND gate somewhere on a board. Um, but, but, so I, I, the, I feel those exercises, though, are still valuable, don't you? I mean, because well, I think... Brian, here, here's the problem. The theory is they teach debugging, but they mostly teach you figuring out where there's a broken piece of solid core wire because your lab techs were cheap. Um, which that's an important, like, listen, that, that, it, <laughs> that's an important life skill, though. I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, like, uh, DuPonts. Uh, <laughs> DuPonts. Oh, my God. All right, all right. I, 
I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you, Brian. Actually, I, I, I think it's good in in school. I do think it's good to have these classes, but I'm, I'm gonna sort of take a middle ground here, I guess, not disagree exactly. But look, I, I, I use in industry very little of what I learned in school. I didn't actually find most of the programs that I was in particularly beneficial. <laughs> no offense to any schools I went to, <laughs> but, but like everything I know about Linux, I taught myself. Uh, everything I know about electronics, I taught myself. Everything I know about computer microarchitecture and CPU design, I taught myself. And so I think there is space for this kind of material, but it doesn't need to target uh, schools. Like, because we run the risk of this is like, oh, you know, top tier, or oh, you went to Stanford and you learned everything and you're great, or you went to CMU or insert school here. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in industry who've been in the industry, say, 10 years. Right. They they they're frustrated because they're really smart. They understand all these different the parts of the world that they're in, but they want to understand more. And it ought to be more accessible. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And I think like honestly, like Ben Eater's stuff, I think, has done wonders for I, I, th- I mean, I don't think the yeah, be interesting to know the kind of what the target demographic of that is. But I feel <laughs> Oh, well, I don't feel like – I definitely did that as an undergrad, so I don't think like, I'm the target demographic for that. But I do feel that there are I, – I think he is open – I mean, that, that's kind of the first part of what we're talking about where it's kind of discrete logic to get to, to a CPU. But I do feel that like – I mean, the thing I would like to get people doing – like I, I like to do myself is getting people over the hump of making their own PCBs because I think what, right, right now we've got this myth that hardware is hard. And, of course, it is hard. But it's actually easier than it's ever been. I mean, Nathaniel, correct me if I'm wrong. You've done this for a career, but it feels like yeah. it's easier now than it has been. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I would say a lot of schools have options for doing that. I mean, I definitely was on a team that made a circuit board my senior year for a senior design project. So we we did fab a board in the course of a semester. And well, like one one of the big problems you get with that though is is that a lot of the open tooling really does not measure up whatsoever against the commercial tooling, just in terms yes. of usability. So, um, so, so, so like, let's, uh, let's apart that PCB design is KiCad. Like, good grief. Like, well, it, it, so, I mean, so it's we, a lot better than it used to be. Matt, we've but, talked about this a bunch. So what are the, what are the pieces that, that are missing here? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm passionately familiar with like ORCAD, and that tool suite is that is that the big one or and, and I've also seen that KiCad has it made big strides. Are there other big pieces or what's missing? So I mean the thing is um, like I I'm more of an Altium guy. Altium makes um, Altium's got a lot of very nice wizards and like the ability to to like write up a whole table of every pin on your IC in Excel and very easily graphically import that and arrange the symbols um and so like you know you can i mean you know my read is that it, it is like there's a lot of polish i mean nathaniel you live sure. in you get to live in orcad every day and it's been sure. a yeah i um, mean and i've used altium before too i i mean i find uh I mean, you know, there there's a, de- a definite gap between KiCad and and the Pro Tools for sure. And, but like that, it's not an insurmountable gap, especially on the schematic side. And so I think you know that that's an area where we, you know, as a, a team of people who do this and and are open source software fans, you know, we can help do things in that space and try to help catch it up. 
this is where Matt is going to r- remind me that I, Matt Keeter is going to remind me that we need to actually be uh, paying, we, we need to be helping out ORCAD publicly, or the KeyCAD publicly and, and uh, as a company, because I think you're right, Nathaniel. Um, the, cause it, I mean, the, Matt, the, the arguments you're making are the arguments that have always been made against open source and that have been made against open source databases and open source operating systems. And the thing about open source is that it's a ratchet. It like, it will, it, the, and it can actually catch up to proprietary software in the limit, which I, I think is, John, I think that's going to help address the gap that you were highlighting of, you know, the number of double E's. I'm not sure, like, what, by the way, that thing that you were quoting, like, what even was that? Was that, like, I don't even think the acties were labeled. Was that? It, the, was the, some, it was some research that I think, you know, Roger Kadori uh, over at Intel, uh, you know, picked up on and posted or something, right? But, I mean, yeah, it, the, the chart was a little uh, funky, right, to use a right. technical term, right? But, but it still made the point. I, it well, the, the, it, it made a point, but I, don't, I, I was kind of wondering how valid that was. I mean, the, the point they were saying was that the proportion, that, that there were more computer science grads than EEs. Uh, pro- proportionally, but I also wonder. Computer science has often tracked uh, much more closely, like with the stock market, in terms of enrollment. <laughs> no, no, I mean it's, it's sad, but true. <laughs> no, 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 it's true. It's true. You're right. I mean, it's it's sad, but it's true. It's sad because it's true. That's right. But uh, so I also wonder if we're if we're going to see a reversal of that ratio. But I wonder also if like the EE numbers have been pretty stable over the years, or or even you know up. Um, and, and putting it next to some other discipline, which is related, but also has these externalities. Matt, Keeter, I saw you jumping in here. I mean, you're obviously, your background is as a double E, but you're very much, I mean, you're right at the so- software hardware interface. What's your perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. Uh, can you hear me? Am I coming through? Yep, we can hear you. Yeah, so thinking about the evolution of tools, like when I was designing boards probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was using Eagle before that got bought by AutoCAD. And thinking back to like that version of Eagle versus the boards I'm designing in KiCad, you know, w- within the past six months, KiCad has definitely caught up and surpassed Eagle from back then. So like the tools have caught up a great deal, and the the open source tools these days are certainly usable. Like I've designed three or four boards at Oxide on them, and other people have designed a solid dozen small breakout boards. Um, Altium, I, I haven't used Orcad as much, but Altium is definitely more polished from past experience. But this ability to spin quickly on these boards, and, and Matt, just speak to some of the little boards that you've done, because we've done a. We, I, this has been, I think, a very important tool in our tool belt. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of adapters and breakout boards. So, like one of the original boards that was designed by, I think, Cliff was called the Gimlet Lit, which Brian mentioned, which is a breakout board for the main service processor, so an STM thirty two H seven, like big, uh, big microcontroller. And this board has a ton of different plugs and ports around the edges. Uh, and so I think now if you stick all of the possible adapter boards onto a gimlet lit, you'll have like six different boards sticking out of it, like a Voltron <laughs> contraption here. Um, so, awesome. so, so I made like, I made a network card, which uh, breaks out an external phi, so you can plug ethernet into it. Uh, Nathaniel already mentioned the dimlet lit, which lets you plug dims uh, into it. There is an adapter which lets you plug a different adapter for our root of trust into the gimlet lit. Um, so that lets you actually simulate the full root of trust system that we're going to have on the servers, like the LPC55 plus the STM32H7. 
what adapter boards am I forgetting? I think there's probably one or two more. We did the Spy Mux, so which has the um, SP's Mux uh, for the host processor boot flash. And we've yeah. been able to spin super quickly on these. So you go to kind of from like ideation to getting it out the door, it, it happens quickly. Yeah. Um, in a day for one of the one of the boards that Cliff did. It was like eight hours or something before you know he like started it. And he, that afternoon, he's like, okay, I'll be here from the fab in a week. Yeah, and this is also kind of the other side of the, the tachyon discussion earlier, where like the tachyon materials are extremely exotic and you have to think a lot about them. But for low-end boards, and by low-end, I even mean like six or eight-layer boards, like that's kind of an off-the-shelf product now where you can design it. You don't have to think too much about it. There are dozens of vendors that will give them to you. Um, so that bar has definitely come down a long ways. Like even in the last 10 years, I've seen it. And and I would say, too, like I I, I did the uh, assembly of both the Dimlet and the uh, Spymox here at the house. And, you know, with a toaster oven reflow, I mean, the Spymox has a, a 0.8 millimeter BGA on it. And like that's totally totally approachable with like an investment of a couple hundred dollars, really, to have a toaster, which is amazing. Um, uh, Tim, you, Tim, and you got you got your hand up, and we just we have hit our speaker capacity because Twitter Spaces is disappointing. Um, so if you've requested it, we have it. We'll get you on as soon as we can. Have, as soon as we can. So it's not it's not you. It's Twitter Spaces. Uh, Tim, you're up. How do you press your name? Uh, Timon, uh, like tea, the drink, and then Pokemon. Uh, right. So uh, two points. Um, one on the education side. So um, my, I went to university. I did not finish my degree, but it was. I mean, I think compared to most because you're maybe a bit more recent. I'm 29. I did it. When was it? I don't know. I think seven years ago, and I did E. Um, and I was working before I started, so like I was working my job um, in like media system design. Started doing some PCB stuff. I was with software, and I was like, okay, maybe let's I should get a degree. And started doing that uh, during the job, and it was so frustrating because the whole experience um, was very centered around mathematics, and you were basically solving formulas for four years before you got to do anything interesting, and. That is so far removed, from my opinion, at least. And I think probably many bees will agree. The job is not so heavy on mathematics most of the time. It depends on the area you're working in. But a lot of the jobs, you're not going to spend all your day solving formulas. That's really not how this looks like. And I think it's really hard to get the right people interested in that. If you approach education from you know a purely mathematical standpoint, there's so much more to electronics and systems and everything um, that is also very interesting. I mean, it is definitely a big part of it, but it is not, you know, I mean, when I say only mathematics, really every course, physics, uh, electronics, uh, the first two years of electronics was really just solving math formulas. And right. then, you know, you never you never build a PCB in the whole bachelor degree. Right. Like, you do right. not, then yeah. that is ridiculous. And we were, we were doing that whole, like, um, sorry, um, the whole breadboard thing, as you mentioned, we did exactly that. It was a 70s breadboard. I used chips from the 70s, uh, connect them together to make, you know, logical circuits, you know, like an adder and stuff like that. And it, it was interesting, for sure. But that was the most practical thing in that whole course. I was keeping up with some people who actually finished the degree and, like, they, 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 there was not much more than that. And that's 
that. <laughs> yeah, and well, I, I mean, I think to ideally, the you know, with more open source tooling, one, you can, you can get that deeper into the education system, and then two, and actually, I'm just gonna mute you there, Tim, and if you don't mind the, the uh, background noise there. Um, the and then, but also, John, to your point, like maybe this is content that really should be aimed at interested professionals. And hey, your right. education does not end that you're undergraduate, and if you. It, and if you start, if you start with like you know Maxwell's equations and and you know Horowitz and Hill as your starting point, uh, you, you know you, you, people people will run away screaming. It's like it's like if you were to start computer science with you know Knuth straight away, right? Like the other computer programming. It's a great set of books, but it may not be the thing I'd recommend you start reading <laughs> if you're interested, right? Like there's oh, there's oh come on, come on, John. You, don't we all do a triple <laughs> integral in the morning before breakfast? You know, <laughs> right. Just, yeah, yeah, who doesn't? You know. Yeah, who doesn't? Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know that, that's what scares people away. Like, you know. Well, well, that's that, that's why there are these walls, right? If if you don't have good walls, people just go crazy. There's no no focus, and there, a lot of people, not not including any present company, aren't interested in leaving the room and learning what else is out there. Yeah. No, and I think getting some curiosity and some understanding about how these different layers of the stack work is very important to kind of building that, that empathy and that, that mutual trust that, John, you were complaining with a lack of, certainly. Uh, yeah. I, I, I see a similar thing with networking, right? People will work all day on their computer writing code and have absolutely no clue how a network works. I think that's the thing. I think a little bit of knowledge, what, what, I guess what I'm getting at is yeah. a little bit of knowledge about the other parts of the stack, right? You don't have to be an expert in every single other piece, but an understanding of what's above and below you. There's also a very important difference between not knowing and not wanting to know. Because exactly. I, I feel like there's a bigger problem on the second set, right? I mean, the answer exactly right. don't know anything, but like you stand up in front of a whiteboard for half an hour and suddenly they understand phase lock loops, right? Um, and, and like they all wanted to know how that worked, just they never had found out um, yeah. versus, you know, versus thinking that, ooh, networks are scary and, you know, we just hurl packets into the abyss and, you know, and we teach people, and we teach people. take a couple of them and, on the way. And, and, and what, what, one of the reasons that people are, are at least aware of the network is because it doesn't work all the time. Whereas with a lot of hardware, it just kind of works all the time. And, yeah, we, it's we not now interesting. We, we now introduce our new version of TCP Reno, known as TCP YOLO, <laughs> in which we just roll data across the network and increment the counter and just sort of pray it works. Well, right. so, so you guys mentioned mentioned networking and, and you mentioned building breakout boards, and I was just that was my my brain is weird. It was thinking about uh, you know what is it type forty nine or forty three or something. Oh. You know the 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 phi information that goes over this RMII interface, right? You have the separate bus that you enumerate the kind of phi that's connected and. And, and and then there's then there's the fun little game of do we cut the orange wire or the blue wire to knock yeah. the hundred meg, you know, like you yeah. Oh, and, and until you until you know this stuff, you have no idea, right? You're like, oh wait, there's a negotiation that go that your 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 Mac is talking to your Fi and figuring out. Of course it is, right? It must be doing that somewhere. How does that work? Don't get me started on Fi's. Yeah, oh. exactly. I so, Matt. I think Matt may have passed out because Matt is definitely in the in the absolute trenches negotiating with Fi. I feel like Matt, you are negotiating with Fi's right now. Yes, I'm personally negotiating with Fi's. <laughs> right. you know, all the, all um, of these Fi's have a data sheet, and one of the lines in the bring up procedure is apply the patch. 
Uh, and that's the entire ex explanation. So you have to dig through the SDK and find the patch, which is an undocumented blob, and then throw that into the PHY and cross your fingers and hope it comes up. Which is probably fixing a hardware screw up to get back onto the hardware software thing, right? Uh, totally. Totally. Well, and there's so much of the world that's that's based on these horrible kludges that, that become fixed over time in, into the world architecture. Now, now are, are we talking 100 meg or are we talking 100 gig? Just curious. Well, funny, funny you should mention that because, you know, we talk about these breakout boards and one that I currently have in design is actually QSFP28 uh, DD cages to Gimlet-led, specifically just to bring out the low-speed signals because we need to look at those and figure out how do you actually program these transceivers for 100 gig and how do you interact with them? And, you know, I think this, we keep talking about these as, as a, a bring-up activity we do and that a lot of companies do it, but it's sort of this interesting piece of bringing the software people to the hardware at some of these devices that we're talking about, the cost of the hardware is really high. And the complexity of the hardware is really high. And a lot of what we're doing with these bring-up boards is actually bringing down a lot of the complexity, making it inexpensive so that everybody can have a p one. They don't need the full functionality. They only need to deal with the part of the problem that they're trying to solve uh, and, and letting people work in parallel. But it, it's sort of, if you try to take a, a broad systems approach of, say, a network switch, you're never going to make a whole lot of progress because there, there are so many different layers that you need to deal with. There, the, the total sum of knowledge required is pretty darn large. But the way these systems get designed and deployed in the field, they sort of assume that it all works together. And it's, it's hard to pare that down into smaller chunks that you can learn on and experiment on. And that's where we've been, you know, doing a lot of that, of developing smaller boards that we can turn more quickly, that we can do more development experimental work on, instead of having single big test fixtures that, you know, only one person can use at a time. Yeah, and I feel like, Rick, that that has not only that we've moved faster as a result, but it's also fostered a bunch more understanding. Certainly, I feel like I understand many more components when I can kind of get them in front of me and understand, you know, this aspect of it. And Brian, on the topic of, uh, you know, tighter integration of software and hardware teams, which is where we started, it seems like a bunch of these fixtures are easy to build, but sort of hard to conceive of the question for them. That is to say, if you're on some isolated software team, you might not know that it's easy for Nathaniel to turn this thing around in 24 hours. Um, and it's only the, the integration of these teams that let us even, you know, get these questions on the table. Yes. Um, yeah. Adam, that's a beautiful point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw something out there. There, uh, you know, in various lifetimes, I've worked on, uh, you know, CPUs, right? And uh, one, one of the interesting challenges is, uh, particularly in that world, you have very historically very rigorously separated hardware and software teams, right? Like if you look at a, well, I won't pick on examples. <laughs> Brian probably hopes I would, but <laughs> traditional, on, CPU, traditional CPU vendor companies. It, it's too oh, abstract. Oh, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who you're talking about. Rounded in an example. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Anyway, no. Um, you look at traditional <laughs> examples, right? They, they tend to be, yes, they tend to be very, uh, you know, separated uh, hardware, software organizations. And you hear from people who, um, you know, are in are in software organizations who are really, really trying to make friends and, and, and break through and talk to the other. And it's very, very difficult. And I think the world's changing. But, you know, the point is people don't know how hard or easy something is for the other side. 
because there's some stuff that's really, yeah. really easy to do yeah. in hardware, right? In, in yeah. logic. And there's some stuff that's like, what? <laughs> that's not possible. I, you know, that that's like, even with the world's most amount of microcode, I can't make that work, you know? And, and people don't, and it, whereas if you, if, if this knowledge was there, then a lot of these conversations, A, wouldn't happen in the first place because the design decisions would go a different way. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'll do this in the software because I know that that's where that has to happen. But the hardware could help me here and make it 10 times faster. You know, people just don't know what can go where. Well, the, that, that knowledge is missing. I totally agree with you, John. And I, I think that the, and we've seen this too, I feel, at Oxide, where there have been things where, on both sides, where like, you know, Nathaniel's able to do dim lit, which is delightful and quick. But Nathaniel, I feel like there's also been some things where, you know, harbor folks are like, hey, could we possibly do this in software? Like, yeah, this was like yeah. 10 minutes. Well, and, and yeah, and I, I think some of it, you got to remember too, is it's not just the knowledge, I think, that isn't exposed. But like when the teams are separated, I think a lot of times they lack empathy for each other and yeah. and the needs. And so and then when you then you get into a rut of blaming each other for problems and then who's likely to come to the table and, you know, come up with a cool solution where, you know, it's like, well, that team never gave me any debug tools. So I'm not going to, you know, and, and like people do this, like even unconsciously. Right. It's not even like you're actively making that choice. You just continue to reinforce this barrier between the teams and it becomes very unhealthy. And, and then you don't even have the conversation that would allow that knowledge to surface. Totally. And I think it's very important to kind of walk into one another's shoes to learn, John, what you're talking about. Like what is some things are really easy and some things are really hard. And if we don't know what's what, we actually don't know what to even conceive of asking for. Peter, I know you had your hand up a while ago. I wanted to make sure we got to you. So sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. I've been enjoying the conversation. This is a great space. What I was going to say is, I mean, you can see in my profile pic and a bunch of others, some of us have gray hairs, right? And, and what that represents is the fact that when we were in undergrad, you could pretty much identify every single chip on your motherboard. You know, you, you could pretty much follow everything that was going on. Uh, how many of us remember the Hayes, uh, you know, modem command set? Like how many of us had a crimping tool, like a punch down tool, wire strippers, right? Like, like everybody at that generation was a hardware and a software geek. We had to be, right? And what's happened since then, like if you take a look at somebody learning to develop these days, like let's say a mobile developer, right? You don't even develop on the phone. You develop in an emulator, a simulator off the box. And eventually after playing a whole bunch of rounds of please mother may I, you may or may not get your application deployed to a phone. And if you take a look at a typical uh, cloud developer these days, they're going to be developing in Docker on their laptop. And after a bunch of uh, tortures of the dam, they're going to put it up into some sort of development environment for testing. Then somebody else is going to take it to staging. And eventually somebody else is going to take it to production. And then who operates it and maintains it is a totally separate team than the people that originally developed the app. And so now what's happening is you have this highly specialized situation where you are being insulated from the environment you're running on. God help you if you're running in a JVM, you're literally not allowed to understand what the hardware is doing underneath that. Like you're, you're insulated, you're coddled. You're in this comfy JVM that's not supposed to understand the hardware. That's not your job, right? And so how can you, you know, uh, do very low level co uh, coding uh, integration? You can't, like that's not your job. Now maybe people doing Rust or C++, they have more of an opportunity to take advantage of that hardware. They can actually see the bare metal. 
But a lot of people these days are running in interpreted or, you know, bytecode kind of stuff. And, and, and so those people are very far removed from the hardware. And I just think that that's one of the things we have to pay attention to is that in order to break down these barriers and silos, you know, somebody may have to have root access on a system somewhere. Agreed. But I think uh, it's important for making things work that your software doesn't try to pierce the abstractions. On the other hand, it's important that people try to pierce the abstractions to learn more. I, I, think, I think you want to make it so that people who want to learn... I think, I think if, I could, if I could have a PSA moment, it would be there's a whole world of awesomeness out there uh, in both hardware and software and in the middle. Um, and here's, here's where you can go to find it out. I think that's not defined well enough. Some good examples, some ways that you can play with projects that are inexpensive. I'm talking, you know, at most tens of dollars or, or you know, inexpensive weekend uh, hobby money for, for almost anyone on, on or, you know, a, a professional salary, let's say, uh, to, to go and fill in gaps in their knowledge. But I don't think we're saying, and in, let's tear down the walls in production, right? I think, it, I think it's fine to have walls in production, but you want to understand what's above and below you uh, to be a better engineer. Totally. And I, John, I love something you're saying. And that's something that I really believe too about like when you say there's a lot of awesomeness out there. I do feel that like something that we've kind of lost in some of the quotidian details of software engineering is the majesty. Like the fact that, that we should be so blown away that these systems boot so reliably. It's the miracle of boot, you know, and we, that we should, I mean, it's, it's amazing that this stuff works and we are, we are truly standing on the shoulders of all of these generations that have come before us. And I feel like we've lost some of that majesty. I feel like, the, you know, when you are, and just as you say, getting, you know, getting one of these microcontroller dev boards and being able to put your own software on it should feel like watching, you know, a sunrise come up over a mountaintop. There should be some sense of like, splendor and majesty there and i mean it's awesome in in the most literal way right and i feel like we do kind of lose that but, but we we to, to get there um sorry just to, just to throw in there i think um to, to to get to that point one other thing we have to do is we have to stop beating each other up right because because yeah. that that sort of unhealthy mentality that's the thing that really motivated me to you know post that in particular it, it's when you go on I'll pick on LKML. Right? Um, you know, there we go. Oh, the hardware people did this and the hardware people did that and they suck and, and you know, hardware is awful and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but hard, they were operating under a very different set of constraints. They had no budget. They had to do it in 10 minutes. <laughs> and you're sitting there, you know, uh, uh, in, a, in a probably a high paid tech job at some tech company, right, with your opinion. And um, it's unfair. And um, I but, think I, th you know. But but this is well, part of the dark dark side of software that too many hardware vendors push off the upfront cost into later term software, which which they then push off to the customers, and it's just a mess. And the next thing you know, so, Matt is loading eighty fifty one firmware blobs that we can't that we have got no visibility yeah. into to make the hardware actually work. So so there's a there's definitely a dark side to all this. Siddharth, you've had you had your hand up for a while. I want to make sure you got it in here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I actually have a lot of visibility to a lot of the points that have been made maybe a while back, but uh, especially with regards to um, you're saying, are the number of double E's decreasing? That's actually true. 
So um, we've had this at my university, like surveys. And this is like a major National Science Foundation and DARPA and basically every funding agency out there and every company out there, right? They're all worried that there are just not that many people getting into E. It's actually gone down over the years, right? And not just E. if you start looking at, you know, microelectronics or VLSR, anyone who can actually, anyone who knows what a standard cell looks like by the end of their undergrad, right? Um, that number is decreasing dramatically. And it's decreasing to the extent that, let's pick a top three CS university. Um, up until a couple of years ago, they actually just had 12 people out of 500 uh, graduate having taken any VLSI course from their mm. undergrad. Yeah, right? wow. So that's, yeah, that's, and, a, yeah, that's exactly. a problem. So, so, so that's the kind of thing that's going on. And it is actually um, in part because despite how good, you know, the tooling is now, you still have to compare it to what the software tooling is, right? So I can fire up a Jupyter Notebook and do everything there versus if I want to actually get something running on an FPGA, yes, you've got Yosis and everything, which is really difficult to get undergrads to actually go through without a hitch, right? Or alternatively, you're using Quartus or Xilinx and I mean, the compile That's times painful. of those things. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The synthesis times. Just the plus, I mean, having to work in HDL, compare yeah. that to having to work in Python, it's just it just drives people away, honestly. But but, but, I, but I'll push mm -hmm. back on that and say, you, you know, in, in school, I, I didn't learn any VLSI. And, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, six, six transistors, uh, six transistor SRAM, uh, mm -hmm. memory cells, right, for example, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't learn any of that in school. I, I, I've, I've learned various standard cells because I'm interested and I read about it. And the information mm -hmm. is there for someone who's interested to go and, you know, arbitrarily study anything. And, and so I, I think a lot of this can also be fixed by just making it... Um, right now, it's, it's almost socially acceptable to hate the other guy rather than to say... Oh, I don't understand your space. I sh I should feel bad for not understanding your space, not hating on you just because you're in a different, you know, you're in hardware and I'm a software guy or whatever or girl. So, I, you know, I understand what you're saying. I I'm not quite sure it's exactly just hate, although I will agree that a lot of the, uh, uh, you need to understand how to do security right kind of threads were written by people who've never written even a simple, you know, HDL thing in their life. But uh uh I think a lot of it is just the friction of getting something working and the ability to iterate. I mean, you can do so much with 100 lines of Python, which it's really hard to do. And this is coming right. from someone who does ASIC design, right? So so this is near and dear to me. And I Did... want life to be a lot easier on that end. Yeah. But at the moment, for a lot of, let's say, let's say for a lot of universities, it isn't, right? So purely from that limited perspective of how do we get students who are more uh, interested on this side of things, it is mm. getting more and more difficult. And on the other hand, honestly, ML is cannibalizing everything. Like uh, yeah. the, I mean, even if you look at a lot of the computer architecture kind of groups, the yes. number of students coming in saying, yes, we want to do computer architect. We want to do hardware accelerators for ML. 
but mostly from like the ML side, right? So I feel that's sort of cannibalizing a lot of that talent as well. And it should, like, mm-hmm. I mean, not it should, not it's not a, it's not a prescription, but I mean, just the amount of money in that is so much. Yeah, it's the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the market's driving it that way. So, so, yeah, so that, that's, mm-hmm. question related to that. So, because yes. I've often thought, you know, the Jupyter Notebook experience with Python mm-hmm. is fabulous, particularly in the machine learning space, right? You want to figure mm-hmm. something out. Oh, you work through an example, click this line, compile it. There is no reason why we couldn't have that exact experience for open source EDA tooling. Th- right? There is similar experience. I know Mitro's got like some of the basic stuff for that funded through some of the you know google money right i am not sure it is as of now stable enough for me to be able to use it in a classroom of 100 people right so it is still something which requires us to work really hard just for us to use as a hobbyist tool right and that's after understanding how different components fit together i mean one thing and um I think someone had sort of mentioned this earlier on, but this is, so I don't know if you've all seen this, but a lot of students nowadays, because their experience of computers is so different from the experience you or I might have had, their understanding of a file system is very different from your understanding of a file system. Yes, I saw that. Is this going to attract people who call it folders? Can we just like, I don't, I'm not trying to add anybody, (laughs) but like, they don't I just anymore. Like, no, there's like a divide between like directory people and folder people. I mean, no, I, here, here no. I am like fostering the mutual contempt. Right. They don't use folders anymore. That's yes, the exactly. thing. What they, they, they've only used uh, Google Drive, right? They yes. just search. They've never had the idea of any any hierarchy. Wait, exactly. what? Are yes, you that's very common. Yes, oh, yeah. people, are, yeah. people are starting oh, undergrad now who have only ever used like a, a, <laughs> no. a, a drive. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> that's the way my email is now. Right. So, so one reason it's so is because, you know... Sorry, it's not funny. It's deadly serious. I mean, we, we've made uh, computers so easy to use, right? And it's a good yeah, thing. It's it's reduced, a, yeah, right, 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 right. It's reduced the barrier of entry. But yeah. at the same time, so many people who've then used computers haven't had that same sort of... Yeah. Well, the, and this, this, right. this is the challenge that and where we are, where things are so mature that, that everything is kind of taken for granted. And then by the time someone shows up and they're 18, they actually don't know that like, oh, by the way, now we need to take down all of this stuff. And you, That's right. I mean, I was, you know, having a conversation with my 15 year old about, you know, he's uh, actually in this case, I was kicking his ass at MLB The Show. Have you played that at MLB The Show, by the way? Oh, yeah. Right? I'm going to come over and play with you guys later. Oh, that's awesome! It's and just like it is the these console games. I mean, it's not at all a surprise that this thing is like throwing off as much heat as it is into my living room. Considering, I mean, it is amazing how much is happening from a graphics perspective, logic perspective, and he's like, I mean, honestly, he's like, the hardest thing about this is loading everyone's stats into the game. I'm like, that is like so far and away the easiest problem that is being solved by this thing. Like all, and I sort of, you're kind of walking him through just like all of the problems that need to be solved and how quickly they need to be, I mean, these all have like software time constraints. And I do feel like I've done my own children a disservice by presenting them a world that is broadly functional. And the world I grew up in was broadly not functional. We were building this stuff at, you know, when you had a personal computer in the 80s. Or, sorry, John, is that now time to, to, to sing God Save the Queen as we talk about the BBC Micro versus the... 
I, 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 um, my country. Right. Right. I always sing. They do, they do God Save the Queen. I do my country. <laughs> They're very good. Uh, I'm a but, bad immigrant. <laughs> but the, I mean, you were for, the things were so much more primitive that you right. were, you were for, and I think that it's like, we need to encourage people to get curious across those those boundaries. And I'm like, I'm optimistic that it's possible. You know what we need, John? This is what we need. Maybe you could be this person. We need a YouTuber. We need a Mark Rober-like YouTuber that can make compelling content for the youngs that breaks down these abstractions. This is what we need. I, I think I think I, I've threatened to to do blogs on on this sort of stuff. And Not- I, I, I I no, I think I should actually do it, right? And it should be YouTube and uh, I've talked to a bunch of people about this, so we, we yes, it needs I to be agree. TikTok, though, doesn't it? It actually yeah, it it needs to be, be TikTok. TikTok. It should be a dance, yes, yes, and and you know, absolutely right. But but there's also like I I look at the next generation. Uh, I look at like you know Alyssa, who's been doing all the work on uh, you know reverse engineering the GPU and the M1, and um, you know the a lot of the work on the the Linux port there. And I I, I believe she might have graduated undergrad. I'm not sh- no I think she's still in, in undergrad right <laughs> just just phenomenally talented person who is coming up now and has just surpassed all of these issues of of the modern world is so different and figured it all out and knows these systems way more than I'll ever know them right like so it's totally possible to be coming totally up possible. now yeah, right. figuring right. it out yep. it's just it's just it's just increasingly harder with time because you have to be an absolute genius to uh, you know figure that out Right, so to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, it's all doom and gloom. I mean, Sam Zeloff, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, but dude yeah. did a whole fad <laughs> oh, in his Oh, God life, damn. Right? So, I, have you seen this, Adam? I, I've yeah, been yeah. banned. No. I've been banned from doing that in our Oh, game. my God. This guy is <laughs> off the hook. Right, so he's, he's just graduated undergrad. So, yeah, so, so, so you should describe what he has done because it is bonkers. Yeah, I mean, he he's literally got self-aligned lithography working in his garage. Like, he, he can do, like, a full... I'm not sure whether he can do CMOS or just NMOS, but he can do, like, a 100-transistor chip. Or maybe that now works. even a 1,000. I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, like he can works. do it in his garage. It's it's honestly amazing, right? It is crazy. And I mean, down it's amazing. a few microns, which is where we were as a civilization in the early 90s. So it's not even that far back. Right. Like, it's... I mean, okay, is it, so wow. this, yeah, this gets to another interesting issue because I do feel like you. it is now, I know, uh, definitely at some point, Oxide will buy our own pick-and-place machine just because there is too much emotional energy pointing us in that direction. To not, if any VCs are listening to this. Uh, we'll, I'm just we'll, relieved, I'm relieved we're not building our own. Have you seen the open? Stories. Have you seen the open PNP by Lumen or Opulo? I think yeah, Opulo. It's a guy. Adam. A guy. Yeah, a guy who left. Uh, the guy left uh, the 3D printing company Formlabs and is building an open source pick and place, like for your house, and it's like fifteen hundred bucks. So Adam, there's, it's there's, there's your question. So we are we are building our own pick and place machine. Apparently, right. I have one in my house. I have one I'm building. So I think but, has one as well. 
so in that, I, I, guess I actually wanted to get, because I mean, you obviously coming out of Form Labs and seeing a bunch of what people were doing at 3D, 3D printing, it does feel like the, you know, Moore's Law, I mean, to what degree did Moore's Law require Moore's Law, right? To what degree did, certainly we could not build a, the, 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 the parts that we build today, we could not build on a computer from 40 years ago. We actually needed to have much more advanced computation. And to what degree is like getting 3D printing in more hands, getting these technologies in more hands going to allow, I mean, I don't know to what degree, Siddharth, maybe you know this, to what degree he relied on being able to 3D print the, 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 for the, the NMOS experiments, the SAM experiments. Yeah, I, I don't know that about... much. I think he mostly got stuff off of eBay and refurbished and sort of fixed things up. Like it's mostly photolithography, right? It's not uh, using using projectors. It's it's, fa- it's right, He's got right. a bunch of YouTube videos that are fabulous, like how he built the. He just take, just repurposes an old projector. <laughs> oh, God, what? And that works. <laughs> okay. It, yeah. And... I, I do want to point out one thing that I, I don't remember her name, but there was this maker. She's in somewhere in Orange County and she did one of the first iterations of this and he credits her for, you know, uh, doing some of the first few iterations of uh, homebrew PCBs and uh, ICs. So I, I do want to give credit where credit is due. You mean Jerry Ellsworth doing the uh, I, I, I think so. I don't remember her name. Sorry. She's Wait, was it Jerry? Five. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was Jerry. Yeah. She, yeah. she did transistors in her oven. She, she's in Oregon, right? She, yeah, she did, she did transistors in her oven at home, because why wouldn't you? <laughs> and Matt, I know, sorry, you, you were trying to get in here as well. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that certainly the, the analogy of computers that let us build more computers definitely applies to the 3D printing, like the amount of 3D printing that was done for in-house prototyping at my previous gig using the 3D printers that existed in-house did a huge amount to speed up engineering development. Like, there's definitely a positive feedback loop there. And I feel like we've used 3D printing quite a bit. I mean, Nathaniel, certainly the, a, a bunch of the stuff that you've done has been 3D printed. I mean, I know we've, we've been using it quite a bit at Oxide. Yep, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the mechanical stuff. I mean, we have our uh, our M.2 holders on all our RevB gimlets are all 3D printed because we don't have our injection molded pieces yet. And our air shrouds were all on the Rev-A were all yep. 3D printed, right? right. Um, yep. yep. Pretty fancy 3D printing. Um, yeah, those are polyjet. Yeah, I don't want to know how much they cost. I know they're very expensive. They're they're gorgeous. They're they they look. They're, I mean, they look better than the injected molded ones. I think. I mean, they're they're amazing. Um. So, uh, Bob, I know you wanted to get in here. Um, and then I I, I know we got other hands up, but Bob, did you want to hop in here? Yeah. Hi, Brian. How are you? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yep, we can hear. You. Awesome. Because uh, you know, space is kind of flaky sometimes. First of all, I just I just wanted to give a shout out to John Masters. When when I was uh, running Linux engineering at a very large Wall Street bank um, about 10 years ago, he, and he was at Red Hat, he was tremendously helpful with us um, working with like software vendors, well, hardware software vendors that had third-party kernel modules that just wouldn't play nice and wouldn't, you know, deal with, with like rel kernel upgrades and stuff. And, and John just did some amazing work to, to help us 
basically beat up these vendors and, and get through those problems. So, well, I, I was just going to ask, is the statute of limitations for whatever crimes that John committed on your behalf against your software <laughs> vendors? Has that, has that, I mean, there's no statute of limitations for murder. You know? so it's like, we got to be careful about what we implicate. But uh, that, I'm sure that was a, that, it was always great to have someone who's kind of helping you out, Bob, right from the inside, who is like, a, it was certainly, I don't know, I like to do that when we were at Sun, but I'm sure it was very frustrating to deal with vendors that were giving you bad kernel modules. Yeah, and I mean, all these these vendors were Red Hat partners, so you know, I'm, I'm assuming any crimes that he committed were were dealt with by some sort of um, <laughs> what do you call that uh, um, internal arbitration. Yeah, the, the, it, Red Hat Legal has a slush fund to deal with crimes that John <laughs> commits in the in the, right. in the act of doing his job. I, yeah. I was always a good boy. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Right, but don't make me call the bad boy. I will call him if I have to. Like, don't make me do that, though. I don't want to do that. I, I want to keep hey, this hey, between hey, you Bob, and me. Bob is, Bob is clearly a happy customer, right? That's what I used to. That's what I used to enjoy. Is 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 there? You go. Hardware, software, co-design, right? I don't know. Well, if you well John, John. The funny thing is, I'm not a Red Hat customer anymore. I'm actually working at Red Hat for about a month now. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, and and I'm loving it. Now, the whole um, premise of the tweet, poor relationship between hardware and software teams, uh, you know, and it, I mean, that has, it's it's the silos, right? And it's, it's not just, I mean, hardware and software, it's, it's also within all the software engineering disciplines that, that organizations have all these silos. And, and it's just a tremendous barrier to getting, you know, um, to, to the cloud native panacea, because if you want to go cloud native, if you want to do cloud, right, all your engineering disciplines got to be working together. They can't work in their own little islands. Um, but but the, the hardware and software part of it is, is, I mean, Brian, that is what Oxide's all about, right? Is, is you know, I, I mean, right now we've got, Oh well, we get our we get our Linux or our our Kubernetes distribution from Red Hat or whoever, uh, but we get our hardware from you know HP and Dell and and there's like this this dividing line you know where where the kernel gets loaded into memory and and before that it's the hardware vendor and after that it's Red Hat or whoever and and you know the 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 two shall never meet. Yeah, and I got to say that my conviction about the importance of hardware software integration has only grown um, through Oxide. I, I, I can't imagine that I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone in Oxide when I say this, but um, I mean, because there are things that like I knew were problematic going into Oxide, like SMM, right? System management mode, which John, don't you think SMM is kind of like an acknowledgement about how overly divided the worlds have become. Yeah, well, it, 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 it needs to die. It's 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 if anyone doesn't know what SMM is, right? It's it's a system management mode. It's like Intel uh, processors have you know four rings. Uh, just kidding, they have negative rings too, right? They have these <laughs> hidden they have these hidden layers where they they had a, a debug mode on the 386 that you could put the processor in, and they figured out, oh, that'd be cool. So why don't we use that to put like fan control and system management stuff and um, you know, I've been in the arm space for a long time and in, in the arm space, um, you know, it, I said, I kicked off a lot of the standards that underpin arm servers uh, about what, 11, 12 years ago. And um, in the very first meeting we had, I said, <laughs> people are going to repurpose the equivalent on arm for bad SMM done again. 
And what we should be doing is we should be moving that into little microcontrollers yes. uh, on, on, the, on the SOC, on the, on the chip, uh, so we don't cycle steel. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that ever in my life did I work anywhere where I may or may not have built anything that didn't have any cycle stealing because it didn't need to do it because it's put it in the right place. Oh, oh I got it. So cycle <laughs> stealing for me, but not for thee. Okay, okay, I get it. But if I had, if I had, I, you know, I mean, my, my whole thing is... is <laughs> if is, I did it, if I stole your cycle, the John Masters tell-all. <laughs> my whole thing is, if you, if you design that chip yourself, um, you'd be crazy to be stealing the cycles from the customer, or from the user, to be yeah, do, to right. be doing system management when a microcontroller is, you know, incredibly cheap in terms of cost, in terms of area. Right, area is the important thing on that chip. Right, how much silicon are you using, and so on. Well, on 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 some of these chips, you you have, you, you know, you hear about uh, you buy a consumer chip today, you have a buy an AMD chip, and you have this PSP, the security processor. You buy an Intel chip, you have this. You know, ignition and stuff running in there. They have a little, uh, <laughs> a little processor in there. People have heard about. Well, um, uh, you, you, you know, just having one is kind of quaint, actually. <laughs> you know, what you really want on these SOCs, on these chips, is 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 several or do or even dozens, uh, and because it, yeah. It's, and we've got to add to that because I think this has been a very sore point for oxide. Uh, those have to be documented. They have to be open considered source. Uh, open source. They've got to be considered architectural state. Because Bob, when you're describing a, like you know the, these things boot the Linux kernel, the Linux kernel is or any kernel, any guest operating system, any either putatively host operating system, but is completely divorced from these hidden cores. It, it, and it's it billions is really of years. Well, absolutely. I mean, honestly, I I assumed that the SSM was just there for the NSA. <laughs> right. Well, and, and and if I may, I'll, I'll have one more thing. You know, it's, it's sort of billions of cycles, right, from the point of view of power on until you run the OS, and all these things are running behind the scenes. What I'm trying to argue these days is it's part of your TCB. If you want to have, you know, confidential totally. compute or something like this, right, yeah. you can't build a truly secure uh, solution if you can't explain what's running in that chip. And so that then necessitates open source, right? I may not be at Red Hat anymore, but that's my open source bleeding out. But it's true, right? You, you, you have to think of all these things. Uh, they help you, right? The, the sort of offloading things is great, but you, you, you need to describe them, you need to document, you need to make that available to people. Well, I absolutely agree. And, and, and honestly, I mean, I've been following Brian and Oxide for a while now, and I, I almost feel like this company is the, the, the you know, it, it, like Red Hat is, that follows the open source way as far as software. This, this Oxide is the open source of hardware, and, and, you know, they're bringing it to the masses, or at least to the enterprise that wants to do on-prem compute. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. I, can I say one Oxide story, Brian, that I don't think sure. we in the last, the last discussion we had, right? So uh -oh. is it uh, is it what's it, is his name Matthew? I forget. The, the, there's a I have a I have a I apparently through marriage I now have a distant. Oh, Andrew! Andrew Stone. You are now kinfolk with Andrew Stone. Yes, yes uh, Andrew. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think it's yes, Andrew. That's right. I'm like I'm like at a family gathering a few months ago, right? And <laughs> and he's sitting there listening to the podcast that we <laughs> that we interview that we did. And he says, are you, John? I'm like, oh, my God, this is great, right? In front of my in-laws and family, right? Like, oh, I, I, you're a celebrity, John. You're a celebrity now. We, <laughs> outside made you a celebrity. We gave you your big break. We launched That's you onto right. the big stage. 
That's yeah, right. just... that's exactly right. Especially at this family like random garden party I'm at. I'm like, dear goodness, how how unlikely is this? It's great. That is that is great. Yeah, I did. I, I believe that uh, he sent me a photo of the two of you. I'm like, oh my god, that Andrew is is with John. But no, I thought that was that was terrific, and I'm glad that we we made you a celebrity. Actually, you know, we uh, when we were doing the the because I get you know every once in a while someone is you know a fan who you know pops up and says hello, which is great. I love it. Mike, it kind of drives my kids nuts because, like, Dad, you're actually not famous. You're just nerd famous. Like, this is not actual <laughs> fame. This, like, don't confuse this with actual fame. But then, actually, the, it, we got to get to the discussion. Like, you know what we should do is, like, there should be a service that allows you to be spotted as a celebrity. So you could be like, look, I'm going to this family reunion. It's a big deal. I'm going to go book a spotting. And then someone could come up to you at the family gathering and be like, are you, wait a minute, are you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt your conversation, but are you John Masters? Because... And just be like right in front of your family. And like, you pay for that, right? I think it's called Cameo. No, not from, <laughs> no, not from a celebrity. From a deliberate, like, from like. So Rudy Giuliani, right? He's going to tell no, 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 no. you, John. I love no. you. <laughs> well, look, that, that costs a lot more. Rudy Giuliani, why'd you go there? God, he's so $300 on Cameo. That's all, that's all he costs. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah I don't think, I'm not sure he's more than that. that. <laughs> But, but you can actually, you know what you can also get on Cameo is you can get the, uh, the most of the, I'm a big fan of HBO Silicon Valley, and I want to have the actor that plays Ron LaFlum, who's available on Cameo, call in as our new Oxide General Counsel. You, you should. I, I mean, how else would you spend venture VC dollars if you're not going to spend it? If you're not going to spend it on that, just acknowledge that you're I, not. I hope they're listening. I, I think you should do that. <laughs> and, and actually, if you guys, if you guys go public. You need to do that on an earnings call, right? You need to do that. <laughs> absolutely, Ricky, baby, Richie, baby. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we need to. We need to go full. It's Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> Aaron, you've uh, you've had your hand up for a while there. Yeah, um, I was going to chime in on the relationship with universities and hacker spaces. In the '90s, the computer engineering system at Georgia Tech, everyone actually made a chip. They used lithography and went into the dark room and Ooh, made wow. a eight-bit processor that had four registers. That's pretty like, cool. Not an impressive chip, but when the photography school decided to get rid of the dark room and replace it with a computer lab, they also got rid of the photo list. <laughs> like we couldn't do it without the dark room, and oh, we didn't have enough clout to have a lithography lab if it wasn't being used by the mm -hmm. photography students who actually used it all of the time. And because of that, I went through an undergraduate program in computer engineering, where having completed the degree was in this position of, oh, how do you make a microchip? Oh, you can't do that. Right. And you got, I, and that we got to find ways to, to alleviate that. And hopefully, I, I don't no, the think, Adam, we, we, I guess apparently, Oxide, we are going to be doing our own pick and place machine. I don't think we, anyone's talking about doing our own photo lift. That I feel... I feel I can say that with confidence, although I'm waiting for Nathaniel to unmute himself. Be like, actually, I was thinking about next year, you know, like we got to have goals for next year. But there really is something to be said for doing things that are not state of the art. So, yes, yeah. yes it's true that if you wanted to build a state of the art lithography lab at a university, it would be a billion dollars. Okay, so actually, but on that, on that note. clean room and say, I don't need to do 10 nanometer technology. I'm going to do. 10 micrometer, like if you're measuring in micrometers, you can actually do that with things that we can build now. Like it's weird that we've gotten to a point where there are hacker spaces that are better places to go make a computer than Harvard.
So on that note, I do feel one of the things that is actually kind of fostering interest and excitement up and down the stack in terms of hardware and software is vintage gaming. Um, and we now have a couple of folks at Oxide who have come in because they developed their interest in embedded systems or at the hardware software interface because they were doing absolutely wild things with the Game Boy in particular. It's going to be, uh, John, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that, that people do with the Game Boy, but oh, it yes. is nuts. I played uh, Game Boy uh, recently because I, I my my old one from you know uh, <laughs> when I was a kid uh, it uh, disappeared. But yeah, I mean, and and it's crazy what people are doing with you know custom cartridges and and uh, who's the guy? I, um, oh, the guy who did the Hack RF, you know, the 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 great Scott, right? He does uh, YouTube videos about very interesting things he's built. He built a cartridge that added. Uh, Wi-Fi and Ethernet networking. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No. We had <laughs> an engineer. Great. No. That dial into an Oxide meeting through a Game Boy. It's like, yeah. You're, wow. Because yeah. it, it and but that is it's also a good like fun. It's playful, but it's also super educational, right? Because you actually are you're in this constrained environment where performance really matters. Where I mean that you can learn a lot about the hardware software interface by getting that kind of stuff. Working, and I'm not sure that you know. I I don't know that it quite gets to Aaron to your get you doing photo with uh, for your undergrad, but I think it actually does um, get people understanding like up and down the stack. And um, well, so I, it also helps them understand the, the 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 you know timing and and how and how like, you know the Game Boy had these constraints that it was operating under. Right. This is why you could only have sprites that had, you know, this many sprites on the screen and, and, and this, the, this kind of movement and so on. Right. right. Like, that's the other thing that's interesting about that. Well, and I do feel that, you know, what I think one of the themes that came out in our On the Metal conversations that I also feel that we've seen at Oxide is that constraints breed creativity. And I do think, you know, John, you said a couple of times in terms of, like, you know, in this, this post-Moore's Law or Moore's Law deceleration period, we are going to need to get more creative about how we get more for less. I also feel, and Adam, I know you and I have talked about this a bunch, I feel that we will live long enough to see people care about how they uh, they translate power into software execution, power for like like power generation, um, and because you know every time you're using power, you're using you know some fraction of non-renewable resources, and people are going to are caring about that a lot more, and they should, and we should be start thinking about what is you know what are the the, the kilowatt hour consequences of this software, um, and I feel like that requires a lot. I mean, oh my god, that requires cutting across the hardware software boundary in so many different ways. So if you're programming for something like a Game Boy, it feels like you can see the hardware much better because if you're going to use up your 2K of memory, you'll notice that. You'll notice that, exactly, yes. So as the person who decided that JavaScript was a good systems programming Hey, language, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, okay, I don't, I, the, 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 this took a dark turn. Who put you up to this? Look, okay, uh, like, we're, I'm we're curious. this now? Like, if, How do you get you know, people to actually see that? I've written JavaScript and been like, okay, I'm going to try and write this code in a way that doesn't torture the branch predictor. I, I have good, no idea whether my JavaScript is or is not torturing the branch predictor. That is the old country. I have left it behind. I am in, I'm a rustation now, so I do not know what you're talking about. But you have to give him credit for, for, for poking at that one. That was really good. You know, I was letting you walk right pie. I was not going to do a UEFI tribunal on the war crimes that you committed against ARM introducing UEFI. I was going to walk right past that, and now I'm thinking we need to go back there. I think no, UEFI and ACPI are great. I think they're, they're, <laughs> they're that's they're, right. <laughs> <laughs> you stand by it. Oh, you're that guy. You're the guy's going to stand by. It. All right, that's fine. That, 
uh, Simeon, you had your you had your hand up. Yeah, uh, I was just reminded of the of the conversation about the fabs at the universities. Um, one of the, the great things that you can do to make sure that your uh, that your university has a silicon fab is to be like a like a a rogue nation, uh, you know, subject to uh, I don't know. Let's say. Um, uh, I, thank, yeah. Sanctions, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, wondering if you were going to mention this. I was going to mention this if you didn't mention this, but yes, growing up in yeah. South Africa, yeah. Yes, yes. Like, actually, the university where I, where I studied um, had a fab specifically to make, um, to make infrared CCDs for missiles. And the funny thing about that is that the same nations that were forcing that economically through sanctions were the ones that were fighting the proxy war through that country. Um, you know, against the Soviet Union. So it was kind of interesting. What I actually wanted to say was, um, it seems to me like hardware software co-design is a term which is confused for various types of project risk management. So like, you know, somebody mentioned the risks when you're trying to make silicon is you've got this very expensive uh, tape out. Like once you make masks, like, you know, you've spent a couple of million dollars type of thing. So you better you better run your project in such a way that, you eliminate risks, you eliminate errors. Um, I, I find it very interesting, you folks talking about how you make these little breakout boards, you kind of like incrementally develop and test your um, your system. Uh, and I would say that it extends to software too. I mean, like agile to me is a way of, um, of managing project risks when the requirements are unknown. Um, and it seems to me like uh, it's it's kind of like you need to look at the risks in your in the thing that you're trying to build. You probably cannot agile a computer, right? You you have to ship that thing, and you cannot incrementally deliver an oxide server. So it seems like that's sort of like the overarching uh, concept here is that you're actually what you're doing is is you're managing project risk. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of yeah, absolutely managing project risk, you're trying to de-risk. And I think that there is a, and I think, you know, you kind of had said this earlier, I think Rick made this point earlier, where you, you, if you kind of are flipping the big switch and then just hoping everything works, like that's not a very good strategy. And we have used the fact that it is much faster for us to develop these little boards to de-risk various slices of it, like the dimlet lit. Um, which de-risks, de you know, one super narrow slice, but one that I was super sweaty about um, because it was definitely like if the machine didn't boot because of that, it didn't on me. Um, so it, it does allow us, to, it's absolutely project risk. Um, and I do feel like th that, it, I mean, I mean it, it also is really important to, we, uh, hardware has, I think, actually too much mystique about it. Uh, venture capitalists, I'm now speaking to you, um, who... <laughs> where it's like, oh, like hardware's hard, it's capital intensive, no one should be doing it. It's like, no, no, wait a minute. Hardware is hard, there is, there's truth to that. But it's also, there are techniques that you can use to actually de-risk a lot of this stuff. And, you know, if it's breakout boards, if it's simulation, which we do a lot of. Um, John, you, I don't know if you dug at all into the Intel Tofino, um, which we're using for our Switch. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you were using that. No, I haven't, but I, well, I mean, aside from, the, the okay. Documentation. Yes. I, I so, about it. best software product that Intel ships. Sorry, Intel. Best software product that it's it, best software that Intel ships is the cycle accurate simulator that we have for Tofino. So we've been able to use a cycle accurate simulator to do a ton of our breakup work, 
which has been, I mean, it's, and the thing actually does like 200 packets a second. It, it, um, clear, but, Buffino is our, is the uh, switching silicon. And right. the cycle accurate simulator, I mean, this thing is ludicrously complicated, has its own, you know, the P4 language that it's executing programs in. So this is, this is a wild and hugely productive simulator. By the way, though, take take, take uh, you know take take CPUs right as an example. Uh, if 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 you if you want to if you're coming up in this industry now and you want to look at how a system is built from from soup to nuts, you can download you know Gem Five. You can build a a model, a cycle accurate model of a hypothetical CPU or even less hypothetical. There's some real CPU examples in there. Um, yeah, you can play with these things and you can learn how exactly how programs will execute which is pretty um, amazing i mean that, the fact that, yeah. that, that this stuff is knowable and it's easier than ever so we should be able to foster some of this uh, this understanding across this boundary uh remy you just got, got in here you have, uh, what were your thoughts um well uh on on tofino nothing in particular but uh i was thinking about uh mentioning that I, I work on a high open source high level synthesis tool uh, at Google that we're using to kind of create these accelerator have software engineers create accelerator blocks um, Ooh. We, uh, yeah what is it so it's called XLS it's github Google XLS um, XLS, okay cool. and uh, yeah we can take we, we have kind of a vaguely rust like language that you uh, can write and it gets turned into Verilog and uh, we're doing all kinds of interesting things uh, making it better. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, you know, really a hundred percent there yet, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty promising. I'd say at this point. Okay. Yeah. This looks really interesting because I think that like HDLs are a, a kind of a fruitful area to develop. Um, we've been using blue spec, but there's definitely, I think more blade than handle Nathaniel. Is that a fair way of phrasing it? With yeah. I, I mean, I think it has its place. I think it's, it's rough around the edges for sure. And, and we were, we're trying to use it like to the pins, which I think is a, a use case that maybe hasn't been exercised quite as much. And so I think a lot of blue spec modules get dropped in inside wrappers, uh, you know, their cores of some kind. And we, I mean, I, I think I, I, there are things I really like about blue spec, but I think we're not going to be a single HDL to rule them all. So I think we're definitely curious about other HDLs that are out there. I know, Nathaniel, you've been like, looking at some of the open VHDL stuff that's out there. Sure. Um, so this looks interesting. And Nathaniel, have you seen this? The XLF? I'm not sure. Are you on no, there now? No, I, I have not. This looks pretty cool. Yeah, How does this so it's pretty cool. So I, I think uh, one thing that's important is to distinguish between an HDL and a high-level synthesis tool, because I, I think this is a common uh, conflation. You know, something okay. like Chisel uh, is essentially, uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, a, a fancy front-end over Verilog, right? Like, you're you're just, uh, you know, yeah. you, you've got, like, a better type system, better, better syntax, that kind of thing. But, you know, ultimately, you're thinking in signals. Uh, in an HLS solution, you're really writing code, and then there's, you know, pretty complicated compiler passes that then transform that code into hardware. So, and you were calling that HLS, so high-level synthesis? Is that what that yeah, for? yeah. So, there, so okay. uh, I'd say, yeah, there, there's other, you know, there's a bunch of industry options like Catapult HLS, um, Bavado HLS, uh, 
that uh, are comparable to this. I don't know. I actually don't know to what extent blue spec exists on the HDL uh, HLS spectrum. I think so. I know that it has these like guarded atomic actions. I know that's kind of like um, there is maybe some kind of scheduling going on. There is. Um, Yeah, there is. Definitely is. But what I don't know is whether it does um, this thing called resource binding, which is basically like, you know, if you have, let's say, a five stage pipeline uh, that has a multiplier in one part and multiply in another part, and you know that you're you only need you only need uh, this thing to have a throughput of one third, then you can uh, you know take you could take a multiplier in one stage and, and actually uh, deduplicate it with the other multiplier by muxing its inputs. Hmm. Um, I I think there's I mean I this is not an area I've explored a whole lot because mostly we're not doing uh, very complicated algorithms in RHDL on the server right now, um, but there is I I know BlueSpec kind of does sit I think in between the like HDL areas and HLS and it, yeah. it kind of has you know it's it's a little bit into both sides of things so I think there is some uh, capability of doing that kind of optimization how fleshed out and easy it is to use I don't know. The thing that's really cool with it is that is like before, I mean, <laughs> I've heard of this Google company. I'm not here representing Google, but I've heard of that company. Uh, you know, the thing, the thing with XLS is that, is that um, it is something that's put out there that, that people can, can use because, you know, years ago, prior to where, yeah. where I work now, uh, you know, I, I paid $6,000 out of pocket for access to Xilinx's Thevado tool set, including their HLS Right. Uh, and and it's like the number of times I'm going to pay that. Uh, a most people won't pay that one time, but the number <laughs> it's a one time thing, right? Oh, I'm really interested. Let me play. And um, you know that's the other issue with a lot of this stuff is that you get really interested, and, and there's no way to get access. Like if you're in school, you might get access through education uh, if, if a course teaches you it. And once you leave, you can't get access at all. Yeah, uh, which is just super weird. Like I, I'm like, wait a minute. If if I were, I mean, if AMD, if you're Lisa Sue, if you're listening, <laughs> oh god, hang on, hang on. Oh wait, wait. Is Lisa Sue listening? I, I got some things to say to Lisa Sue. Do you think? Because yeah, I got some things to say. Please yeah, open source everything, open, AMD. Well, don't even please. Open, I mean, open source it. That'd be great. But even if you're not going to open source it, at least make it uh, inexpensive for somebody who's on the weekend just trying to play yes. and learn and actually yeah. interested in you know playing with something like Vivado or whatever it is, right? Um, like, why should you, as an individual, pay six thousand dollars for access to Xilinx stuff? Right. You're not going to do that. You're not going to. You're not going to be able to learn. And, and and if you can get access and play, maybe you'll use it at work. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. Well, and we've tried to. So we're using Lattice FPGAs for exactly this reason because right because they're open because they open source toolchains. Right. Well, they're. It's such a curious kind of case because it's kind of like open source against their will. They were. Semi, they, yeah, yeah, forced. They, they, they are like. Uh, <laughs> they are choosing not to legally enforce that someone has reverse engineered that the. Uh, and Claire Wolf, I mean, God bless her, has reverse engineered all this stuff to, and we've been able to use it. But trying to explain to Lattice, and the good news is, like, Lattice is not opposed to open source tool chains, but they are very confused by it. And they're like, and we try to explain to them, you make money from the FPGA. That's what we buy from you. So if we, the more we can make, like, the more we will buy of your FPGAs. And they're like, no, this doesn't make sense. You're like, okay, we're just not communicating. But I, I do think that, like, yes, please, 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 these tool chains need to get open. And, and honestly, Remy, kudos to 
those folks inside of Google who are making sure that things like XLS get out there, because I'm sure that that's, that that's a discussion that has to be had. And, and it's, it's a huge service to the broader industry that things like this are out there. This is, I mean, this looks pretty cool. I want to play around with it. So um, it's interesting to me that some yeah. of the open source tools have such a reputation for not being high quality as the proprietary tools. Because at least when I was in university, one of the tools we had to use was this layout first schematic checker. It's like, okay, here's your chip layout. Does the schematic actually mean the same thing as your chip layout? And one day I gave it the commands in the wrong order. And I told it my layout was my schematic and my schematic was my layout. And the graphics card drew an error message to the screen and the computer rebooted. Right. Well, so <laughs> And it's like, if I had the opportunity... I would have taken an hour and fixed that problem because I lost more than an hour's worth of work and wanted it to never happen to me again. And so if everyone actually, had the opportunity, someone would have fixed it before I got to it. And the issue is not quality, I don't think. The issue is actual features and polish, not quality. I think from a quality perspective, I mean, Nathaniel, correct me if I'm wrong, but from well, a quality perspective, it's been, uh, I think it's been surprisingly good. There's liability think, though too, right? There's liability with a lot of these folks like, there's a fear, you know, like if I use this commercial EDA flow, then nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Oh, wait, they bought Red Hat and I left. Oh, anyway, so, but, you know, nobody ever got fired for <laughs> buying a proprietary EDA tool, right? Like it's, 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 it's unfortunately the mindset. It's not necessarily true. But this is sort of the natural <laughs> evolution of all open source tools, right? Like initially they yeah. are not as robust, not as featureful. And they they all sort of I mean they all get there based on that need and and often it's the not waves exactly that, to that though, right? Sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, I mean one of the problems is silicon verification is huge, right? And if you haven't silicon verified your entire chain, then anything could break, right? And then like you don't want to debug the actual hardware, you don't want to debug silicon, right? That's like the worst situation you'll ever be in. So, I mean. Yeah, the foundries work with the EDA tool providers and they make sure that sign off on one end actually means what you think it means. And one of the, well, I wouldn't say issues, but one of the limitations of a lot of the open source tooling, at least on the Silicon side, is that it's not people working with the foundries that have sort of uh, got this whole sign off verification flow and all worked out. You don't have you know, a hundred chips taped out where you can say, okay, you know, all hundred of them worked. They met That's my point. An area. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> That's my point, right? It's, 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 it's the liability. It's like, it's like, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get there, but I can, I can understand somebody who's writing a check for tens of millions of dollars saying, I'm going to use the EDA vendor, you know, yeah, exactly. it's a bit, it's a bit fuddish, <laughs> but it's also like the cost of failure is so much higher than I'm just going to update the software. Right? Yeah, yeah, I understand. It, it, when I think as an industry, we need to, we definitely need to walk before we run. And if we can get to open PCBs and if we can get to, to open FPGAs, I mean, open A6 would be great, but that is definitely, uh, to me, that's the next, that, that's a, well, a much tougher mountain range to climb for all these reasons. Um, because you are dealing directly with the foundry and the, the, the consequences i mean just siddharth as you're mentioning like the consequences of, of bad silica are so high um so 
I, you know, Adam, normally it is you who has the toddler uh, beating <laughs> on the door. I am, I, I've got the kids solo this week. Uh, the 17 year old is fine, but I've got a 10 year old who definitely is getting, as she's explaining to me in the background, hangry. Um, mm. So, I, yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to go, uh, go, go deal with the, the hanger here. Um, but, John, this was great. Thank you so much for, uh, I'm glad that you, uh, whoever set you off on LKML, I'm, I'm secretly glad they did it because it's been great to have you here. This has been a really fun discussion. Yeah, it was really great to hang out, Brian. And uh, I guess I should join this uh, again sometime. That'd be great. Absolutely. And John, if you ever need to be cited as a celebrity, I want you to, we will we'll make that happen for you. I want you to know that. Uh, got, they, very they, affordable uh, costs, right? Very affordable. Like much cheaper than Giuliani. Like I, that guy's ripping you off. So we can, um, we'll make sure that you get cited as a celebrity at all of your family gatherings. I, I will 100% take you up on that. <laughs> awesome. All right, John, thank you so much. Adam, thank you as always. Thank you, Nathaniel, uh, to everyone, Rick, Aaron, Semi, and Remy, Siddharth, thank you very much. Tom, thank yeah, you for your Thank you. A lot of fun. All right, take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye.